0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. Happy New Year. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So because that's true, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, as we've been working our way through this beautiful New Testament letter. We find ourselves at one of the most beautiful chapters in all of the Bible. If you're joining us for the first time today, welcome. We've been working our way through Hebrews and uh, I'm glad that you're with us today and I pray that uh, the, the preaching of the Word will bless you and, and even though you may feel like you're behind, you'll catch up and you'll hopefully understand the context of where we are this morning. I think uh, Hebrews chapter 11, it's, it's not hyperbole to say that it's one of the most famous chapters in the Bible. And I've really been looking forward to this chapter, and I'm glad that we're beginning it here on this first Sunday of 2024. This chapter is so famous that sometimes it almost stands alone, and there's value in that. I think you can just, just sort of parachute down into the Bible in and places and, and get a lot out of it but hebrews chapter 11 is it fills an important place in the message of this letter up to this point the first 10 chapters the anonymous author of hebrews has been building a case a, a massive theological case that jesus is better he's he's what all of the old covenant what all of the bible up to that point the old testament has been pointing to he's a better priest He's a better sacrifice, he's a better law, he's a better rest, he's a better promised land than anything that was promised before. And now all of this massive doctrine that the writer of Hebrews has been building, where he's encouraging these Christians to not give up on Jesus, now turns here in chapter 11 to this wonderful mountain of Hebrews 11, this wonderful exhortation of faith. And so we're going to take a couple of weeks to work our way through it. We're going to start with the first seven verses. I'm going to read through it. I'm going to do my best to explain it. And then on this first Sunday of 2024, we're going to come around the Lord's table and receive communion together as a faith family. Let me read the text and then pray and then do my best to explain it to you. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. The writer of Hebrews says, Now faith through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith... Well, before I pray, let me give you the flow of our time in this Word to help us understand it. I've broken it up into two parts. The first three verses, I think, are uh, an explanation of the nature of faith. And then the next few verses, verses 4 through 7, are three examples of faith. And really, that's the balance of this chapter is all of these examples, one upon another. A whole chapter's worth of examples of what living faith looks like. And we'll look at the first three. So the nature of faith. And examples of faith. And that will be our time in the word. Let me pray. Lord, we, we need this text. I need this text. I need more of the type of faith that is described in Hebrews 11 in my life. We need our good doctrine to actually do something in us. Lord, I sense in in my own heart and in the life of this church that this chapter is an important milestone for us. May we not breeze past it, may it work its intended effect in our lives. I pray that you would be glorified, that Christians in this room would be spurred on, that any unbelievers in here over the course of either today or in weeks to come would see Jesus for the first time and would trust in him. Lord help me help these people and be exalted I pray among us through your word and by your spirit in Jesus name. Amen. First three verses I think explain to us the nature of faith. These are famous verses. Let me read them again. The, the writer says, and he's come on the heels of encouraging them in chapter 10 about having faith and not shrinking bath and back. And now he goes into these three verses which are, are, are well known and, and not an exhaustive, but a beautiful description, at least of a particular aspect of faith. And he says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen, for by it, by this faith, the people of old, meaning the people of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, received their commendation. By faith, by this faith, we understand that, uni- that the universe was created by the word of God. So in a sense, faith causes us to look back to something that we weren't there for and understand that all that is was created by God's power. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So think about what's going on in verses 1 through 3. In in a sense, faith causes us to look forward, to hold on to what's ours in Christ, to promise. And it does that by causing us to look back and seeing that God is the creator and everything begins with God. Now to help us understand faith rightly in chapter 11, we, we need to understand the way faith works differently in justification and sanctification. Justification is that, that one moment of, of salvation and the moment where a person understands the gospel and receives the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to them versus what happens in the rest of the Christian life, which is sanctification. And faith, although faith is faith, faith is acts differently in our justification, the moment of our our salvation, than it does in our sanctification, the process of living out our our salvation. So how does faith work in justification? Think of it this way. The old-time reformers, after the English Reformation, came up with wonderful statements of faith that said that faith, faith in justification or faith in salvation is faith that merely receives and rests in other words faith is a gift it's it's not that we are saved by any work that we're doing but faith is something that god does in a person and that faith think of it this way faith's role in our salvation in our justification is the the role of an empty hand it merely receives it doesn't do anything it's it's only given to us as a gift by God in as much as we can apprehend and believe and trust not in what we do we don't bring anything in our hands in our justification but it's an empty hand that enables us to receive what Christ has done in his work his obedience his perfection that's the good news of the gospel we're not saved by what we do but what, but what by what Christ has done and that's been the author's point up to this point, that he's a better mediator, he's a better priest, he's a better sacrifice. So faith in justification is an empty hand. But now, and this is so important, the faith that he's speaking of here, the aspect of faith in chapter 11, is not the faith of justification, an open hand that merely receives and rests, but it's the faith of sanctification. It's now a living and active faith. It's the consequence of a justifying faith that now grabs a hold of God. So think of it this way. Faith in justification acts as an empty hand that merely receives, whereas then that living, active faith in, in sanctification, the rest of the Christian life, acts as a clenched hand that grabs a hold of God and works out in fear and trembling, as Tyler read for us from Philippians 2, all that God calls us to do. And here's the point that is so critical as we get into Hebrews chapter 11. We must understand the difference of how faith works in each aspect between justification and sanctification. And we can't blur the lines. And many theological errors through the centuries, and even today, are, are because of a misunderstanding of the distinction between the way faith works in justification versus sanctification. And if we bleed them over into one another, we get into all sorts of error. For example, if we think that there's anything that we hold on to, that we bring about, if we, if we try and import any of faith's activity in sanctification into our justification, then we're starting to get into the ground of saying that we're saved by something that we do. But that's not the good news of the gospel. It's the the finished work of Christ alone. We sang about it earlier. It's, It's finished upon the cross. We are not saved by anything that we do, but solely because of what Christ has done. And faith is just this empty hand at the moment of salvation that enables us to see that, receive that. Our sin is given to Christ, and his righteousness is given to us, and we are justified. We're made right in Christ. But then that saving faith, as James says, if it's true saving faith, will then issue, will then result in, will then bring about a living act of obedience. So faith, that saving faith, if it doesn't result in obedience and works, James 2 says, is dead. Which then gets us over into sanctification. So if we bring any of the works that are required, that are necessary as a consequence of our saving true faith into justification, it becomes legalism. But, and I think we make that point here often, but, here's the corrective on the other side, and Hebrews 11 is going to do that for us, is that if we don't then, if we then take the restedness of the faith and justification and import that into sanctification, then our obedience, our Christian life, becomes too passive and it can go from the one ditch of legalism into the other ditch of a cheap grace where we just kind of believe and that's all we have to do. And Hebrews chapter 11 is about the faith that we're called to that grabs a hold of God and acts and lives and obeys and strives and struggles and strains. And there is, and I think we need to admit this, there is a subjectiveness, there's an intangibility to this faith that the writer of Hebrews is calling for. Look at at the words in verse 1. He says, faith is the assurance. What's assurance? It's this confidence. It's this sense that we believe what we believe, we're trusting in Jesus, but it's this inner feeling, it's a conviction. How do we grab a hold of conviction? It's in something that's not seen. So in a sense, there is an intangibility, there is a kind of improvability in an empirical sense to faith. And that is part of God's design. All the way back in the Old Testament in Habakkuk chapter 2, the prophet says, God says to the prophet, that the righteous shall live by faith. And then in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that we walk not by sight, but by faith. And so God has, has orchestrated, has ordained, has created a universe whereby his people, whereby he has deemed it most glorious for him and the renown of his name for his people to not follow him by sight or by empirical evidence, but by faith, by this subjective thing, by this thing that at sometimes can be weak and at other times can be strong, that rests in us. It's this assurance. It's this conviction. It's this living and active faith, not the empty hand that we receive faith for salvation, but then the, the hand that holds on to, that it sometimes will wax and wane, that the point of Hebrews 11 is to strengthen the hold of real faith of God's people despite their doubt. And see, we got to get this, is that faith is not the absence of doubt or fear, but it is the holding on to God It's the obedience despite the remaining sin. It's the pressing on despite the discouragement. It's the holding on despite the feelings of weakness where faith is proved. And that's what the writer here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is calling for. And notice this. Notice this. He's saying that for by it, by this type of faith, this Intangible, subjective, living, sometimes weak, sometimes strong, but persistent faith that holds on to God is the thing by which the people of old, meaning all the Christians that have come before us, receive their commendation. And the point that the writer of Hebrews wants to make is that he wants his audience and us now, 2,000 years later, to receive this same commendation. And who he's, so he's saying is this. Faith that you received in Christ at your justification. Work it out with fear and trembling. Hold on to God and by it. Make it all the way to the end. And so then he gets into examples. That's the nature of faith. And now the examples of faith. And we'll start with three. I think we'll make it through three. Let's look first at Abel. The first example of faith in this chapter. By faith, look again at verse four. By faith, Abel... Offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Okay, what's going on here? Well, I want to make sure that we're all familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, these two first brothers, These first two children of Adam and Eve. So let me read to you from this story, all that we know of this story, this being referred to here in verse 4 of Hebrews 11, all the way back in the opening chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4. Let me start reading. Uh, I'll, I'll read verse 1, but 2 through 7 is where it's at. So let me read verse 1. Genesis 2, or sorry, Genesis 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, And so again, this is right after the fall, I mean, the monumental historic Genesis chapter three, where we have the fall of Adam and Eve, and we have this promise of God to Eve that she will bear a child, that her offspring will bruise the head. So there's this uh, this shadow, this first, in a sense, this first preaching of the gospel in Genesis chapter three, where uh, Adam and Eve have fallen they're about to be excommunicated from God's presence. Think about how intense this scene is. And God says to Adam and Eve that, okay, Eve, you're gonna have a you're gonna have a child. And he says to the serpent, the devil, he says that this offspring of Eve is going to uh is, is going to crush your head. You may bruise his heel, but he will ultimately defeat you, is, is ultimately what's going on in Genesis chapter three. And now we get right into Genesis 4. And the rest of the Old Testament is really waiting for this offspring of Eve that we, we don't know who it's going to be if we're just reading in time, but ultimately we know it's pointing to Christ. And so here we are. Adam knew his wife, knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, verse 2, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. So Abel was a shepherd, and Cain was a farmer. In the course of time, Cain... Pay attention to this. This is all that the Bible really says about this interaction here. In the course of time, came Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering... But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That's... That's the story. That's the description of what's going on here that's referred to in our text, Hebrews 11, verse 4. Here's the question. Why was Abel's sacrifice more acceptable than Cain's? Now, this has been debated and written about and speculated about throughout church history. A couple options are. Some people have said, well, Abel here, because what we have here, just to sort of summarize the scene, is that we have these two brothers... They both offer sacrifices to God. Abel's a shepherd; he offers the first fruits of or the first uh, of his his cattle or his flock, and Cain offers some of his crops. And God accepts Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. So why does He accept Abel's sacrifice? Well, people have speculated. Some people have said, "Well, maybe there's this clue that God." Was more pleased with Abel's sacrifice because it says there in verse four of Genesis four that he he brought the firstborn of his flock, whereas there's no designation that Cain brought the first fruits of his offering, and so some people have speculated that well, Cable, or Abel brought brought the the best of his 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 uh, work, whereas Cain did not. That's that's possible. A second option is that uh, Abel brought a blood sacrifice. And there's this thought that what Abel did was more costly because the blood sacrifice of the animals was was a a kind of picture anticipating redemption. And that's a possibility too. Great men in the history of the church have have believed that. But I think probably what's going on here is, is even deeper than that. Is that there's this aspect of faith that Abel had that that Cain did not, and God is seeing their hearts, and it's not so much that, that, that Abel brought the first of his animal sac- of, his, of his flock, and Cain didn't, but it was an indication of Abel's heart and trust and reliance on, on God, because we see here that even after this, Cain had the opportunity to repent. God comes to him and says, "Why are you angry?" Cain's upset, and why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? And he says, "If you look, if you will just change your heart, you, you will be accepted." Verse seven is essentially what God is saying, but but Cain entrenched himself in his anger and his self absorption, and so I think what's going on here is that that Abel is this early on in the Bible example of coming to God. He's this example of trusting god of giving god his best he's not holding back from him and and god sees abel's heart and he honors it so what's the lesson here of 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 abel well i think the lesson of faith the point is is very clear it's it's be like abel trust god by giving your all to him now, notice this. I want you to see this. This is so important because in, our, in churches like us that put so much emphasis on the finished work of Christ and the way faith works in justification, there's all this emphasis. And sometimes I even look back at my own preaching and I feel like maybe I've been guilty at times of an imbalance here. There can be so much emphasis on the finished work of Christ That there isn't then this necessary consequence of the finished work of Christ, which is what that justifying faith should produce in us, which is an active, living, sanctifying faith that says, and this is the point of Hebrews 11, is be like these old saints. So, We shouldn't be afraid in the rest of the gospel, in the freeness of grace, to come out of the goodness of the gospel and say to ourselves and hear from this be like Abel. That's the point of this text. Be like Abel. Don't hold back, give him your best. Abel is an example to follow, and Cain isn't. What you will receive from God is far greater than anything that you will give up. Friends, it's simple in our glorying in the beauty of the sovereignty of God and the exalting of the finished work of Christ. Let's not stop there. That's the point of Hebrews 11. Take that justifying faith and then put it to work in your life and make it cause you to trust God because everything is yours, so give up everything to Him. Now, we're not shepherds and we're not farmers, so what does this look like in your life? What are you holding back from God? What obedience, what radical thing in your life, what thing that if you would give up would would maybe cause you to, to step out in some sort of doubt or anxiety or stretch yourself, what does it look like for you in your life to offer the first fruits, the first aspect, the fat calves of your life and say, God, it's yours. I'm not holding anything back from you. Oh, that God would give me and us more faith like Abel. Be like Abel. Trust God by giving him your all. Secondly, Enoch, the second example. Enoch's an interesting character, uh, a mysterious character in the Old Testament. Look at verses 5 and 6 of our text, Hebrews 11. He says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And he rewards those who seek him. Well, that's a, verse 6 is glorious. Let's, look at, let's make sure we understand Enoch in context. Again, let's go back to Genesis. Now we're in Genesis 5. Verses 22 through 24, and this is the, the story of Genesis, the story of Enoch, really all that it said about him in Genesis, it just gives us this little blip about this wonderful, mysterious, early patriarch of the faith, Enoch. And it says in Genesis 5, verse 22, and this is what our text in Hebrews 11 is referring to, it says, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And the historical understanding of what that means, and I think it's exactly the way the writer of Hebrews interprets it in our text. And if you're wondering how to sometimes... uh, uh, apply or to understand or interpret the Old Testament. Anytime the New Testament interprets or sheds further light on the Old Testament, go with that interpretation. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says about what it means that all of a sudden Enoch was not, for God took him. What does that mean? It means that he didn't see death. He was not found because God took him. So in a sense, Enoch was just translated. He was, he was in a sense sort of raptured. He, he did not taste death. So what's the significance of Enoch? Enoch is a picture. All it says about Enoch is that he pleased God in the way he walked. He's this early example of faith in the midst of the darkness of human descent into sin that we see in the early chapters of Genesis. And God took him. So he's this example, I think, of eternity of the return of Christ, of the of, of, of God's people being translated, being transformed. He's, he's a picture of what it will be like for at least one generation of Christians on earth when Jesus returns and they will be alive when he returns, and they there will be a generation of Christians sometime in the future when Jesus returns that will not taste death, but Jesus will come again. That's spoken of in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. The dead in Christ, those saints that are in heaven, will come back with Jesus in his second return. And the saints that are alive on earth will not taste death. We will meet the Lord in the air. He will come and establish his kingdom forever. And we will all be transformed. And Enoch is a a picture of the reward of the person who's walking with and pleasing God. He's a picture of that hope of the Christian. He's a picture of the hope of the reward, the resurrection, eternity that awaits us. And it's a result of, don't miss this, don't be scared of this, people that love the glory of Reformed theology. It's a result of the fact that he pleased God and he walked with God in his earthly life. He pleased God and this is how God rewarded him. In other words, his justifying faith was validated, authenticated, vindicated by the sanctifying faith the way he actually lived and obeyed and pleased God in his life. And he received the reward that is all of God's people who strive and struggle with living, active, imperfect faith to please God. Now what's interesting here, before we move on from Enoch, is just one last thought on him, is that notice that he's juxtaposed with Abel. Right next to Abel, it brings up Abel. And then there's Enoch. I don't think this is any accident. In fact, nothing in the Bible is an accident, actually. Uh, You should believe that, by the way. Nothing. Every, Every little jot and tittle is exactly where it's intended to be. But I think there's something to note here. Is that Think about how Abel's life ends tragically. It's the first murder in the Bible. His life ends tragically at the hands of his jealous brother. And he's commended as an example... Of living faith. And the next example in Hebrews 11 is this man who we don't know much about but seemingly walks through life like on rainbows with people playing the you know harp in the background all the time and it's wonderful and he gets translated. He gets, he doesn't taste death. Not that Enoch never saw hardship, but there's this juxtaposition of being murdered by your brother to walking with God and being, being raptured at the end of your life and not tasting death. What's the point? Is that Don't look at a person's life and the way it seems to be going and draw a direct line and say, oh, that person's obeying God, so it's going well for them, and that person uh, isn't obeying God, and it's not going well for them. God's mysterious providence works its way out in a million different ways in our life. For Abel, it was being murdered by your jealous brother. For Enoch, it was living a long life and being taken up by God and not tasting death. God is God, and he has his purposes in our life. But both of these lives... And everything in between and every circumstance in between can be lived in a faithful, God-pleasing way. And God is glorified and God's people get their reward. That's a beautiful juxtaposition. And then finally we get to Noah, verse 7. By faith Noah, the third example here, by faith Noah... Well, let, me, let, me just, let me just circle back because just a little consistency here. I don't think I put it up on the screen. Maybe they were ahead of me, but I think the lesson is be like Enoch. Be like Enoch. Please, God. Walk with God. And you will be rewarded. That shouldn't make us nervous. People like us who love the finished work of Christ and love to exalt the doctrines of grace and say that it's all Christ and nothing we do, if, if that's all, I think this is the point of Hebrews 11, if that's all that we have to say about the Christian life, that is a truncated view of the Christian life. Now that the finished work of Christ is yours by justifying faith, Hebrews 11 says, now this living and active faith, seek and strive and struggle and strain to Be like Abel, be like Enoch, seek to please God and live your life, live out the implications of your justification with this certainty, this assurance that God will reward, don't be afraid of that, will reward those who diligently seek him. And the point of Hebrews 11 is trying to stir up in us more thirst for obedience, for fighting sin, for trusting him. Be like Enoch. Walk with God. It will go better for you. Verse 7, finally, Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Well, we won't take the time to read Noah's story in Genesis because it's a couple chapters Genesis 6 and 7 following. But I think most of us are familiar with this story. Noah had lived many years, the world was becoming increasingly wicked. At the end, of Genesis chapter 5, it tells us that Noah was 500 years old, and then at the beginning of chapter 6, it tells us that God spoke to Noah, and he told him to build this ark as a testimony against the wickedness and to save his family, that God's going to bring a flood. And then we read, it's probably, we don't know, the Bible doesn't exactly say, but it's probably maybe about a hundred years of Noah constructing this ark being called a fool by the world around him. And what, what was Noah more afraid of? What was his, where was his fear? His fear, it says, In reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. For decades, he endured the scorn of a lost world around him, and he saved himself and his family. Now, there's a lot going on here in redemptive history in Noah. I think Noah and the ark is a picture of Christ, ultimately. But at least the way the writer of Hebrews is using Noah, he's using Noah as an example of faith amidst a hostile culture. And he's wanting to say to the Christians in the first century in Rome, look, fear God more than the Roman Empire, you may have to live in such a way that the world around you thinks you're a fool. But be like Noah. Trust in him. So what's the lesson and the point? Why, why is the writer of Hebrews appropriating this glorious, redemptive story of Noah and bringing it down into an exhortation on how to live in a wicked world? I think the lesson or the point is be like Noah. Noah. Be like Noah and fear God more than the world. Now again, how does this apply to us? Well, we we may not be spoken to by God to construct an ark because of some impending worldwide cataclysmic judgment. But what does it look like in our lives as Christians in our culture? And I, I particularly am thinking of maybe young people that have grown up and just Such confusion. How do you take verse 7 and appropriate it into your life? Be like Noah and fear God and trust God and believe him more than the foolishness of this world around you. If the world tells you that a person can choose their own gender, don't. Don't fear the opinions of other people more than you fear God. Trust in God. If the world says that you must live this particular way in order to be accepted and pleased, fear God more than the world. Hold on to Christ. Be like Noah. Don't give in. What do we fear more? I think this exists in the church. We we want people to love us so much. We're so scared to offend. And in our desire to not offend everybody else, we drift away from shore and end up offending the only one who really matters, which is God. Be like Noah. What does it matter if you have a good doctrine of justification, but you cower in the face of a wicked culture? I think that's the point of Hebrews 11. Now, there's a whole lot more we could say about this. I'm not saying we need to be arrogant jerks, all these things. There's there's so many, but we could lose the point with a thousand caveats. The point is, is that you Have Christ in you. Fear God. Be like Noah. And it may be in your setting, your time, your place, your friend group, your peer group, your job, your cubicle, your platoon, your situation, to stand up and obey God and not men. And the point of Hebrews 11 is to Call us to look at those who have gone before us and say they did it and they were holding on to a shadow that they didn't even fully see. We're holding on to Christ who we know has come and done this so we can hold on to Christ. Be like Abel. Be like Enoch. Be like Noah. Trust God. He rewards his people. Let me pray. Lord, as we come now to the table, I pray that you would help us. Lord, I need more of this in my life. I need more I need more of my good doctrine to, to produce a good grip. I need the empty hand that you've filled to be more alive. I need to be more like Abel. I need to not hold anything back from you, Lord. I I see areas of my life that I hold back from you. Forgive me for that, Lord. I'm a master at justifying things so that I can make myself feel okay about little inner decisions I'm making. When I do that, I'm so much more like Cain than I am Abel. Forgive me for that, Lord. Lord, I need to be more like Enoch. I need to have a kind of single-mindedness in my life that pleasing you is all that really matters because you reward those who diligently seek you, walk to please you. Lord, I need to be like, more like Noah. I need to fear you more. I need to be more courageous. I need to not care what other people think of me more. Lord, I can only do this, we can only do this because of Christ. So the strength of sanctifying faith looks back to the certainty of justifying faith. It says that because of what Christ has done, because greater is he that's in me, because you have given me everything I need, because Christ is more than enough, because you have every pleasure at your right hand, I am can live for you.